0: 9-11, through because these three little verses sum up everything we need to know about Christ dying and why did he die. And that's kind of nestled right in the middle of Hebrews here, but it's so, so vital and so important. So, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with the glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Now, let's just break this down real quick. First off, we're talking about Jesus. Verse 9, but we see Jesus. First thing I thought of when I read that passage was in Hebrews 12:1 through 2, and you don't need to turn there. It says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The longer I walk with the Lord, the more I realize everything just focuses on Christ. That's what it is. It's all Christ. So often as churches and as Christians, we get worked up on so many things that have nothing to do with the eternal salvation of whether people are going to heaven or going to hell. And we need to look unto Jesus. And that's why I love verse 9. We see Jesus. That's who it comes down to. That's who the focus is, is Christ. Now, I know we say this a lot, but you would think that this should be such a fundamental aspect of Christianity. And the problem is it's not. The longer we go here in the world, the more and more you see people that are willing to accept the fact that Jesus may not be the only way. You know, And you start to see this stuff start to creep in. You know, and I'm not picking on any certain group when I say this, but there was an article, I believe it was in Newsweek a few years ago, and I think I still have a copy of it, where um, the Catholic Church, there was a push in the Catholic Church to make Mary co-redemptress. And if you stop and you think about that, and I'm not saying this to bash Catholics, but co-redemptress, the only Redeemer is Christ. And you run it into other groups too. They may not try to make somebody else a Redeemer, You know, the Mormons, what do they do? They make Jesus just a brother of Lucifer. What do the Jehovah's Witnesses do? They make Jesus the first created beings. This is all taking away who Christ really is. He's Jesus. He is God. He's the only one. And why did he come? Verse 9 makes it clear. The suffering of death. Now, I looked up all those words. You know what suffering of death means? Suffering of death. There's no way to sugarcoat this. He came to die, Jesus was born to die. Very simply put. Now, we like to think that Jesus was born to do all this and all that stuff. No. From the day Jesus was born, his whole mission was to die. Now, think about this from Mary's perspective. When Jesus here is being born, she's taking him as a young baby, and who does she run into? She runs into Simeon. What does Simeon do in Luke chapter 2? He talks about Jesus dying. Then he runs, she runs into Anna. What does Anna do? She talks about Jesus dying, being the Redeemer. That's a tough thing for a mom to grasp you got your little baby and everybody sees the baby and what they're thinking about. He's going to die for me. That's a tough thing to think about. You know, even with Joseph, when the angel came to Joseph, the angel said Jesus was coming to die for the sins of the world. When the angel came to Mary, and when she is there talking about that, that he will save many. Well, how's he going to save many? By dying. Now, for you that have had kids before, you know when your firstborn comes, you know the beauty of it and you expect the whole world to stop turning. Because your kid is the most perfect, amazing kid that has ever been born in the entire world. And everybody comes and just brings gifts and stuff like that. Now, we just talked about this not too long ago with Christ at Christmas. But when they brought gifts to Jesus, they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Frankincense and myrrh speak of what? His death. What a gift to bring a kid in the hospital. It's something to remind them of. He just came to die. But you know what? We can't sugarcoat this. Verse 9, the suffering of death. That's why Christ came. For 33 years, he walked on this earth to prepare for one day, and that day was his death. And that's what we do here. This is what we're, and I'll use the word celebrating. That's what we're going to celebrate tonight: is the death of Christ. Why did he come to suffer and die? Look at the end of verse nine. He might taste death for everyone. See, you don't have to taste death. Oh, you'll die physically if you're not raptured out. But the idea of dying for your sins, you having to take that sin and punishment. You don't have to do that. Jesus tasted it for you. When you go back to the original Greek and look at this, it carries the connotation of the cupbearer who stood before the king, and before the king ate or drank anything, the cupbearer would do it. When if the cupbearer killed over and died, the king wouldn't eat it. He would taste death for the king to make sure everything was okay. Jesus tasted death for you and I, so we wouldn't have to. I don't have to pay the punishment for my sins. Jesus did that for me. He tasted death. And who did he taste death for? Everyone. Yeah, the people you can't stand, he tasted death for. Isn't that amazing? God loves everybody. I still struggle with that. Because I think there's some pretty unlovable people in the world. And I've shared this story with you before, and I'll just make it quick. I remember uh, years ago doing a discipleship class out here. And uh, one of the first things we do in discipleship is always like to go around and have everybody share their testimony, how they got saved, etc. And we were talking about the grace of God. And we got to this story of um, just a, a despicable person, if you will, that did horrible, despicable things and got saved. And we talked about how God can bring us all out of that pit. And we talked about how God loves everybody now he may absolutely hate the choices they make and he may hate their lifestyle but the fact of god loves the pedophiles of the world god loves everybody and we use that example and this person got so mad they walked up and left the discipleship class now they rode with somebody else they were so ticked at this point they just started walking home on their own because it was so difficult for this person to accept the fact that god loves everyone Because there are certain people in his mind that are just unlovable. But when we stop and we see this, Christ suffered in death. He tasted death for everyone. That's why he could hang on the cross and say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's why he could do that. That's an amazing example. And when the Bible tells us to love our enemies, Jesus set the bar pretty high there saying, I can do that. So therefore, when we look at this in verse 9, what do we see? Jesus' sole purpose was what? To come and die, suffer, taste death for everyone. That's why you're here tonight. That's why I'm here tonight, is to celebrate this fact. Now, what happens after this is, there's four things. The why. Why? Why would he do this? Jump ahead, if you will, to verse 10. For it was fitting for him, Now, that's a tough passage, fitting for him. You King Jamesers out there, it says, because it became him. What it means when it was fitting for him means this was him. Who who else could do this job? It was fitting for him. No one else fit the mold to take care of it. How many times have you heard us say out here, anybody can die on the cross for your sins, but they're not going to rise three days later. See, the resurrection proved that God accepted the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. So I can get on a cross and say, you know what, I'm dying for the sins of Harvest Fellowship. Three days later, my body's still going to be in a tomb. It's not fitting for me to die for the sins of the world. I can't do it. If for Christ, it fit. He's the perfect mold for this. Sinless perfection. Now, did you ever stop and think about that? 33 years. I, my, today's my birthday, as you heard. I turned 33 today. Now, Jesus did not sin for 33 years. I've gone probably 32 without sinning. That's just a kind of a guess. But the point is, I'm happy to go 33 minutes sometimes without sinning. 33 years of sinless perfection on this world. You know, John was given that prayer request tonight about going into a spiritually dark world. You know how easy it is to fall down to the trap of of man? Boy, they want to talk like that? I can talk like that. They want to be that way? I can be that way. I had a situation recently with this business, and I was wronged by the business. And I was typing them an email today, and I started getting really gruff, like I'm going to take my business elsewhere and everything like that. And I started thinking, is it worth it in the whole scheme of things? I mean, we just got done talking Sunday, speak evil of no one. You know, 33 years, sinless, perfect sacrifice. That's the first point, fitting for him. No one else could do it. And don't you love God for this? There's a sin problem, and he doesn't leave you hanging. One of my favorite things to do to Judah, and this is horribly wrong and I know it, is I love to leave him in the room with the lights off and just keep the door shut so he can't get out. He just screams and don't ask me why. It's something I just kind of enjoy. Um, and I, it sounds bad, but it's not as bad as it sounds. But it, I know it doesn't sound good. It's not, it does sound bad. Yeah. I'm gonna get a phone call from human services. Um, the, the point though is he can't do anything about it. He, he can't flip the light on. He can't open the door. And now Elias finds it funny. Uh Kenan, for some reason, finds it funny, and maybe that's why I find it fun with Judah. Judah freaks out. But the whole point is, there's nothing he can do about it. And I'm really starting to feel bad about this, but there's nothing he can do. The whole point is, imagine God presenting us with a sin problem. James, you sinned. You snapped at your wife. Lord, I'm sorry. And God says, okay, what are you going to do about it? Um, I'll sacrifice animals. Nope, not good enough. Um, I'll do penance. Nope, doesn't work. I'll do that. Well, Lord, what am I supposed to do? It's not my problem. See, it was fitting for Christ to take care of the problem because no one else could do it. See, this is the thing I don't get about the world. They want to take Jesus out of stuff. Well, if you take Jesus out of it, where's salvation coming from? Nothing else fits. Nothing else takes care of the problem. It had to be Christ and Christ alone. It had to be. Which brings us to our next point here. It was fitting for him... For whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory. That phrase, bringing many sons, that word literally means, and I wrote this down, to lead with oneself, to attach to oneself. To lead by accompanying. Which means you lead, but as you're leading, you're just not saying, follow me. You literally take that person on your hip and say, I'm leading by taking you with me. See, Jesus didn't die and just randomly point and say, figure it out. He leads me in salvation. You ever thought about that? Psalm 23. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. See, I can't do it on my own. See, even if I understand that it was Christ and Christ alone, I, I still can't do it. Christ helped me. Jesus just doesn't sit there and say, fine, you know, just go do this, say this, do this. He says, no, I'm going to literally lead you. I'm going to bring you into salvation by you and me becoming one. Jesus is the ultimate example of leadership because look at the next point that we have here in verse 10. To make the captain of their salvation. That captain means leader. Now, depending on your translation, you NIV out there, it says author of your salvation. New Living Translation, it says leader. That's the way it is. Christ leads in salvation. He leads it because he's the only one that can do it, and he brings us with it. And how does he do it? Look at the last point that we have here. To make perfect, perfect. That word literally means complete. It's completed. How many times have you heard us say recently, when Christ cried out on the cross, it is finished. It's completely done. Salvation is done. It's complete. Jesus fit the mold. Jesus brings me along with him. He's the captain of it. He's the leader of it. It is him. It's perfect. It's complete. Stay in Hebrews real quick and just go to Hebrews 10.10. Great little verse about this. Hebrews 10.10. By that will we have been sanctified, which just means set apart, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. Do you realize Jesus died roughly 2,000 years ago? And he took care of it all. It's done. It's complete. It's finished. One day a year, that's all he gets, is for us to come together and say, wow, Lord, thank you for that. Now you may say, well, that's not true. We get together, we talk about his death and stuff. You know, but we don't talk about his death. We skip the death part. Oh, we'll say like Jesus died on the cross for our sins and then he rose again the three days later and we have newness of life. That's great. We'll spend all Sunday talking about rising from the dead and resurrection and empty tomb. But he died. And how did he die? How many times have we seen the word suffering? We saw it in verse 9. Suffering of death. Look at the end of verse 10. Perfect through sufferings. Perfect through sufferings. Well, what's that mean? You don't need to turn there because we're running short on time here. But Isaiah 53, write this verse down. I hope you can go back and take a look at it later. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, meaning to bruise Christ. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. Now, that verse sounds weird, doesn't it? God the Father was happy to bruise Jesus. Doesn't that sound a little demented? I mean, imagine, I heard this example of a pastor saying this. Imagine somebody, God forbid, breaks into the church here at Harvest. And for some reason, he decides he wants to hurt a bunch of people here and he throws some type of, I don't know, grenade or bomb in the middle of everything. So I pick up my son, Elias, and throw it on the grenade. Wow. Is that what God did? Somebody has to pay the price, so Jesus, go down there and die. That sounds horrible, doesn't it? God the Father just sent Christ. You, you go die, Jesus. I don't want to deal with this. No, that's not what it's saying. Because, see, you've got to remember who Jesus is. Who's Jesus? He's God. See, if he's the firstborn of all creation, in the sense of the first created being, well, then God can do what he wants. I'm going to send him down to go do it. If he's just the brother of Lucifer, like the Mormons believe, well, then just send Jesus down. Jesus is God. So when Jesus is sent to die for the sins of the world, God is saying, I'm sending the only perfect fit for this myself, because he's the only one that can take care of it. And when it says it pleased him to put him to grief, does that mean that there was a joy in Jesus' suffering? I'm going to say there was to an extent, because God the Father realized through this death of Christ, peace could be made between you and I. And the Bible also says in the book of Hebrews, because of the joy that was set before him, Christ endured the cross. Even though Christ went through horrible sufferings and death, he did it out of joy because he knew it would fix this problem. What a joy it was. Once again, you as parents, if you've ever had to have your child go through some type of medical procedure, there is no joy in that in any way whatsoever. I remember when uh, Kenan was uh, just uh, a few weeks old. Uh, He got pretty sick. He ended up having to spend about five, six days up at the uh, Toledo Hospital. And they had to run all these gambit of tests. They had to do spinals on them and stuff like that. There was no joy in that. But there was a joy in the test coming back and finding out everything was okay. There was a joy in everything going well. Now, that was just minor. I see what some of these other families have gone through with kids, and I just think I just can't believe it. I can't imagine it. But yet, if you knew your child was sick, and the doctor came and said 100% sure this surgery, this procedure would fix this problem and your child will be fine for the rest of his life. Once you as a parent go into that surgery with joy? Oh, it's done. Yeah, they're going to cut your kid open. Your kid's going to suffer. Your kid's going to have a recovery time. Yeah, but it's over. Once this surgery is done, it is over. See, this is what Christ went through. He suffered horribly physically. Horribly physically. And, you know, the Bible says he was marred more than any other man. You know, when any time Hollywood tries to make a picture, a movie of Christ, what he went through, they can never do it justice. Uh, The boys love to watch the Jesus movie. And the Jesus movie is a great movie, obviously. I mean, very biblical, very good. But when it comes to the sufferings of Christ on the cross, it it doesn't do it justice. Because he's not marred more than any other man. When we think of what Christ went through, it's unbelievable. It's unimaginable what he went through. The sufferings of it. And why did he do it? He did it for everyone. He didn't just do it for the good people. He did it for the people that hate him. He did it for everybody. And what does he get out of this? What's the result of all this? Verse 11. For both he who sanctifies, so that means Jesus who sanctifies. Sanctify means to save, set apart. You've been sanctified, I've been sanctified. This means we've been set apart in righteousness. And those who are being sanctified are all one. Wait a second for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Do you see verse 11? Jesus says we're one with him. See, this is the result of this whole thing. The whole thing of Jesus' suffering of death, tasting death for everyone. He's the only sacrifice that could do it. He's the only one that could go through it. He's the captain of it. He's the one that fulfills it. He makes it complete. And why does he do it, verse 11? So you and I could be together. Seriously, now stop and think. What's the nicest thing anybody's ever done for you? I mean, does it even compare? even compare about what some people are, what what Christ went through. And he did it so we could become one. And do you realize you are a brother of God? That's a pretty good title to have. Now, let's take this one step further. And I was going to bring in tonight, and I thought, okay, I don't need to do shock value here. I was going to bring in a worm. We love to go outside and catch worms. Now, why would I bring in a worm? For those that have been coming on Wednesday nights, what did we just learn in Isaiah a few weeks ago? He calls us worms. Yeah. So, now, look at it from this perspective. For both he who sanctifies and those who are worms are all one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call the worms brothers. Now, when you look at it from that perspective, that's a little different perspective. See, I don't think I'm all that bad. So when Jesus says, James, I want to be your brother, it's like, yeah, you probably do. You know, I'm a good guy. You probably want to hang out with me. Now, if you take the perspective of putting a worm up here and say, okay, James... Would you go through death and torture and suffering for all the worms of the world? No, I'll put them on a hook and feed them to fish. I don't care about the worms. They're worms. See, God died for the worms. That's you and I. See, we're really not as great as we like to think we are because we look at ourselves and we're so desynthetized to sin, but I'm not that bad. Well, when you compare us to the perfection of Jesus Christ, how disgusting is it that God would die for worms, us. See, this is what we're here to do tonight, is to put into perspective Christ is the only sacrifice that fit the bill to lead us into salvation, and he died for worms, so that way we could be one with him as brothers. That's fascinating to me. Absolutely fascinating. And that's why we're going to partake of communion here, is to stop and say, Lord, I'm not worthy. I am not worthy of this. And you know what? God says you're right. You're not. And that's why it's called grace. You're not worthy of it. I'm not worthy of it. And quit trying to think of what God saw in you to find you redeemable and savable. There's nothing worthy in you or me that's redeemable and savable. If there was something worthy in me, then it's not grace. Grace is there's nothing redeeming in me and God still loves me. That's mind-blowing to me, that there's nothing in me. I bring nothing to the table. I offer nothing to God. And he still says, I want you, James. That's grace and mercy. Gotta love it. Gotta love it. Does anybody have any quick questions, comments about this here before we get ready to go in? Yeah, Megan. Well, you got to remember, praying just means talking. So Jesus was talking to God the Father at that time. Okay. We can get in. We we can talk about yeah. Trinity. Yeah, Trinity. Yeah. <laughs> Trinity's a little tough to explain in ten seconds or less. Um, but you know what? What it comes down to is Jesus. You know, God is three and one. Three separate things, but yet also one at the same time. And so, therefore, when Jesus is praying, he's praying to God the Father there, and that's what's going on. And we can, we can get into that more a little bit later here too. Not that I'm dodging your question, but we can definitely that's a good one-on-one thing there too. John, just something you would add to that? Yeah, one of my favorite scriptures for describing the Trinity is in 1 Timothy three sixteen, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was In the world, up mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good one there. That was 1 Timothy 3, uh, 16. Yeah, so, you know, that's always one that's kind of tough for people to swallow. It's like, okay, so they're all three one, but yet they're all three different. And my, my favorite example of just trying to describe the Trinity, and I'll use myself as an example, is I, as I stand in this room, you know, my grandfather's sitting over there, my dad is sitting over there, and one of my kids is in here. So at the exact same time, I am a son, a grandson, and a father all at the exact same time. And those are three roles that I can do at the exact same time. And it's not confusing. I can be three roles at the exact same time, but still be one person. Now, I can't pray to myself. That's something only God can do. But the point is three at one at the same time. And that's the fascinating thing about the Trinity. And I heard somebody say one time that uh, if God was so easy to understand, he wouldn't be worthy of our praise. Uh, God's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Did you have another question then you said, Megan? Or... Yes, that is Isaiah. We just went over that one. That one I may have to. What is it, Ryan? Forty-one fourteen. 41.14, There you go. You. For you, for not you, you worm Jacob. Forty-one fourteen. Thank you, Ryan. Yeah. Uh, just uh, like you said about Hollywood never getting it right, how Jesus was. You know, uh, part of that is you know the sort of kidification of the Gospels. You know, making it suitable for kids, but. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but he's always you know, nice and clean. Is, is, is that just a general of the gospel? Or, or is it more of a, uh... I mean, I don't know if it's necessarily the general ignorance of the gospel. You take like the Jesus movie. Um, if you if you make something so grisly, it, it does take off part of the audience is isn't able to watch it. You know, And part of the reason why my kids can watch the Jesus movie is because they're not showing scabs of skin hanging off Christ. Um, and so I think in some ways... I don't know if we'll be able to be able to fully dictate what Christ went through. I mean, and what does that mean where it says in Isaiah he was marred more than any other man? What does it mean in Isaiah 53 where it said it pleased the Lord to bruise him? Uh, My personal opinion is Christ probably suffered more emotionally, physically, spiritually than any other man that ever lived. How can you depict that on film? I mean, that that is just something that we're we're never fully going to be able to understand. Even throughout the book of Revelation, Jesus is referred to as the lamb that was slain. And, you know, uh, Rich Betts and I were just talking about this week. um, I used to work for a summer. I worked in a uh, butcher fact, butcher place. And when you go in there and you see the animals being butchered, there's no way to describe that. (laughs) It's just this depiction of slaughter. And Christ was slaughtered, if you want to look at it from that perspective. That's what our sin did, the punishment that he went through. So I don't know if Hollywood is trying to water it down or can we ever really fully grasp and understand what he went through. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's probably more. That's probably just more for common things. You know, that way you can have your eight-year-old watch it. You know, from that perspective type thing. That's just my guess, my opinion. So, anybody else got any final things here?